Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our hosts and stars of this show, Mark Wiley and Will George. It's a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, episode 435 on our network. Before we introduce our great guests today, we've got, this is the first show of a quadruple header Thursday, so we're packing it in today, following this show with Cott's Corner with the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Then we have Joe Frazier on with Nick Green and followed up by She Gone Nation leader, Jeff Fry. So big Thursday for us today. Want to thank our 65,000 subscribers, 74 countries right now, grassroots MLB front offices. We appreciate your support because you guys were nominated for two podcasts, baseball podcasts of the year awards, one with sports podcast group, the other with the Webbies. I didn't make that name up, guys. It's the Webbies. So two two awards we're up for. If we do win, we will get to keep our awards. Uh, I promise you guys that. Also want to congratulate Jaw Bats, newest certified bat in Major League Baseball. They're one of our newest partners. Uh, Jeff Fry doubled out fantasy camp uh, using one of their bats. And my son Tanner's using uh, the M110 model, both lefty and righty. Loves it. Great finish. Use RVG at checkout. We'll get you a percentage off not only their maple bats, but all their merchandise. Great group of guys. Let's try to support them as well. And with that, guys. Oh, also, Fry, I want to leave these guys out. Just had a meeting with them. Millions is our newest marketing partner. Uh, They are going to handle the influx of uh, sponsors that are reaching out to us because of our new milestone, our two awards. And uh, they're going to handle all incoming marketing. So any marketing groups that want to contact us, you can contact me and I'll direct you to our guys at Millions. But thank you for their partnership as well. With that, Mark and Will, welcome back to your show. Will, we missed you last week. Yeah, great. Great to be back. Great guest today. We do. And uh, Mark, do you want to introduce our guest today? I sure will. Um, It's been a a friend and we've been in contact since 1988. I guess that's like 36 years. Um, wow, that's a long time, buddy. Um, you know, I, I got quite a bio. I'll try to kind of pick through it a little bit to make it a little faster. Uh, buddy was born uh, to parents that were Canadian, which I did not know till I researched this. And his dad played professional hockey, which I did not know either. Um, in 1976, uh, Buddy graduated from Mark Morris High School in Longview, Washington. Uh, Then he attended uh, Lower Columbia College uh, uh, for two years, then went to San Diego State for uh, his his final two years. Um, He was drafted in 1977 out of the junior college, uh, third round in the January draft and second round in the June draft, uh, but decided to go to San Diego State uh, and got a degree in in uh, business, in, in ma- business management. Um, his professional career, he was drafted by the Seattle Mariners in the 17th round after his senior year, 417th pick. Um, that's quite a, a place to be picked to end up being a major leader that's lasted 15 years. Um, in the minor leagues, he was with Seattle and Kansas City. Uh, got to the major leagues, like I said, for 15 years, <clears throat> won 121 games, pitched over 2,000 innings, uh, had over 1,000 strikeouts, 12 shutouts, 11 saves. Um, and for eight seasons, Buddy won double figures and wins uh, uh, during his career. Uh, in the big leagues, he pitched for the Seattle Mariners, Kansas City Royals, Kansas City Indi- I mean, Cleveland Indians, Toronto Blue Jays, San Francisco Giants. Um, 
Then his, he moved to the front office uh, where he's been over 28 years in the front office uh, with a special assistant uh, uh, to the Cleveland Indians, 95 through 97. Ended up being a pitching coach for the Indians uh, in AAA in 98 and then became a major league pitching coach uh, the next year in Anaheim where he spent seven years as the major league pitching coach from 99 to 2005. Change uh, came <clears throat> from there. He went to San Diego Padres as the manager, where he managed for 10 years with the man there. And now he's been with Colorado for over eight years and counting um, as manager of the Colorado Rockies. Uh, Buddy's had a lot of awards in his lifetime. Um, even his very first one uh, was a championship in the Caribbean series as a player for Venezuela. Uh, and in, 80, in uh, 1984, he had the lowest whip in the American League as a pitcher. Uh, in 90, in also in 84, um, he he played in the American League Championship Series, which where they lost to Detroit. With he was with Kansas City in 85, uh, they won the American League pennant and World Series with Kansas City. Um, he was inducted into the San Diego State uh, College. Uh, Athletic Hall of Fame in 92. Uh, he won the uh, American League Championship with the Cleveland Indians in 95. He won the World Championship in 2002 as the pitching coach for the Angels. Uh, in 97, American League Championship, Cleveland Indians team. In 2005, Cleveland <clears throat> Cy Young Award winner Bartolo Colon when he was the pitching coach with the, uh, the Indians. Uh, 2010, National League Manager of the Year with the Padres, 2000, and he was the only the third pitcher uh, that got named as the Manager of the Year, um, uh, with Durker and uh, and Tommy Lasorda the only other two. In 22, he won his thousandth game as a manager. In 2017, um, he 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 managed the Colorado Rockies to the wild card game. Uh, in 2018, they won the Colorado. They won the the wild card game against the Chicago Cubs, and then lost the division series to the Milwaukee Brewers. So, I'm welcoming Buddy, who I've known for a long time, um, as a player, as a as a compadre, in uh, in in working with the Rockies. And uh, it's been nothing but a pleasure. This guy is truly one of the gentlemen and smartest people I know in baseball. Wow. <clears throat> Thank you, Mark, for the introduction. <laughs> uh, you know, when, uh, when you were going through that, it made me uh, reflect on, you know, so many things and how many uh, people had a part uh, in all, uh, all this as far as my career goes, you know, even going back to, to junior college. But uh, as you know, and all you guys know, I mean, it, uh, you know, the people that, that, you know, that came before you, who have taught you and mentored you, uh, you know, are so responsible for, you know, so much of uh, success that an individual might have. And um, I've been blessed to be around a lot of great ball, you know, great baseball people, some great baseball minds that I'm sure we'll talk about as we go through uh, this podcast, but it's great to be on uh, with you three guys. And, you know, obviously I've known Will and Mark, I've known you for 36 years and uh, you were my coach and then became 
uh, in your words, a compadre and coworker. And I, you know, I've always appreciated our interaction and our, our, our baseball talk. So, uh, guys, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to, to this. Uh, I always love talking baseball, Mark, as you know, and, uh, let's have a great day. Well, I just want to say, and I, I, I sent this to you because I didn't know if you knew it or not, but I'm just saying that when you were in Cleveland, when I was your coach, you had some of the best numbers on a really bad team for three years. You had your best win percentage, 527, your most shutouts, five, your best ERA, 3.93, and second most complete games with 11 and 78 starts. You had 16 and 128 starts with Kansas City, but you had 11 seven in 78 starts with us. So I thought I'd just throw that out there, Gene, how we go back a long ways, and I just wanted to show you the impact that Cleveland had on your career. Yeah, well, well, thank you. And I think that, you know, it's funny when you talk about complete games, and you know, I know that uh, you guys are sort of chuckling, and, you know, in today's in today's game that, you know, those are uh, things of the past, but, you know, for me, and I'm a, I'm a baseball historian, just like you guys are. And I look back to, and I'll look at, you know, pitchers who came before me and look at their innings pitched, look at their complete games. Uh, even when I broke into the big leagues, right guys, I, you know, when I got to Kansas city with Dennis Leonard, Paul Splitorf, Larry Gura, Vita Blue, uh, you know, it still blows me away to to look at those guys, uh, their numbers. And I know you mentioned Jim Cott, you know, who who's going to, uh, you know, come on and be a part of uh, a podcast here after after our session. Uh, you know, look at Jim's numbers, right? I mean, just uh, incredible. And uh, it still amazes me, you know, the, you know, the things that, uh, you know, pitchers did you know, as recently as the, you know, as the 60s and 70s that, you know, there's a big part of me that I think we can get back to that to, to some level uh, with the modern day athlete who are, you know, bigger, stronger, faster and have better resources. So anyhow, uh, Mark, thanks again for, uh, you know, what you've meant to my career. And I know that uh, those years in Cleveland, you know, the first time, right, 88, 89 and 90. Uh, when you were my pitching coach, and then again in 95 when we went to the World Series. And thereafter, uh, you know, when I moved, uh, transitioned from player into, into coach and starting my education uh, as, as a baseball man off the field and what you meant to me, uh, you know, all you guys in the Cleveland organization were very instrumental, uh, you know, in, in, my, in my path. You, John Hart. Uh, Dan O'Dowd, Mark Shapiro, uh, you know, the major league coaching staff, uh, Mike Hargrove, Buddy Bell, Charlie Manuel, uh, Jeff Newman, Davey Nelson, you know, great coaches, right, that, uh, you know, that meant so much to, uh, you know, our group in Cleveland. You know, it's funny, you know, I used to keep track, people used to say, well, you know, teams that go to championships, you know, if you notice, the players seem to last longer than the rest of the average group of players. Uh, their careers, I can't tell you how many pitchers on championship teams I had that pitched over 10 years, uh, up till even 15 or 18 years. And, uh, you know, when you're good, it shows up. And when you get a group of really good people, 
even coaches, you look at coaches and you, you start to look at where they, they went, you know, Charlie became a manager, Buddy Bell became a manager. Um, Davey Nelson was a broadcaster. I mean, everybody had jobs and stayed in the game for a long time when you're with a championship team, because it's kind of like uh, a magical uh, chemistry between staff and players when you have those kind of people. Yeah, totally agree. I think they're, you know, the the common denominator and all that is I think just a, you know, a true love and passion for the game, right? That, you know, the, you know, the work comes first, right? I think everybody uh, who are championship level coaches and, and players, uh, you know, love the work, you know, they're, uh, they love the practice, they love the studying, they love being on the field. Uh, not that the game itself is secondary, but uh, you know, the, you know, the, the sweat that you put in, you know, on the backfields or in the bullpen or, uh, early work in spring training or early work during the season. I mean, that's, you know, that's what I always loved. And I always found that, you know, the guys who love that, uh, who love going to the park early, uh, who love staying late, uh, you know, those are the type of people you want who ultimately end up being, you know, championship caliber pl- uh, people. You know, it's funny because not a lot of people know how how to do it, how to get to the playoffs, how to get to the World Series, how to win the World Series. Um, you know, there's not a lot of teams that get there. And I remember when we get there to the World Series and we were the last two stand and I thought it was like the coolest thing. Like 30 teams, we, we outfought 28 teams to get to the World Series. And, uh, you know, that means a lot. And you learn a lot through that, uh, you know, how to react. And, you know, that leads me to the question, what, you know, uh, how did you feel? Was it more nerve wracking playing in a world series or coaching a world series? Seeing how you did both. <laughs> you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's more nerve wracking as a coach. Uh, I think as a player, when you're, when you're in the fire, I think you're in your element, right? I always, I always thought that, uh, you know, the playoff games that I've pitched in, uh, you know, pitching in the World Series, I felt as though I was in control of uh, of my emotions and, you know, what I needed to do. Uh, as a coach, you know, you prepare your players uh, the best you can, right? And, you, and that's one of the things that I've, I've tried to do as a you know, as a coach and manager to try to instill that, you know, that emotion that uh, no matter what game you're playing, whether it's a spring training game, whether it's a game in May, whether it's a game in uh, a September pennant race game or a World Series game, you have to keep the same level of intensity, focus uh, and emotion uh, because you can't turn it on and off. You, you truly, it's hard to. And I think if you try to do that, it affects your performance. So uh, you just never know what's, you know, what a player is going to do when he, when he gets into, you know, those, those critical moments and those hot spots and, uh, you know, when a, when a crisis occurs, uh, but you try to teach them the best you can. And I always, I always, you know, that's the, that's always the wild card is how, uh, how a player performs, but that's part of coaching, right? And you, you start that from, you know, the very first time you get a player and it, and if you have that player for years, 
uh, you know, you can help a player along the way. But I think the the best players, uh, Marker and Will and, and Dave, are those guys that, uh, you know, have that poise, uh, you know, under fire that they can that that they can compete at their best. And you and you try through conversation and coaching to you know to help to help them understand that. But uh, don't get me wrong. Hey, I was nervous as a player. I remember you know in in St. Louis uh, in 1985 starting uh, Game Four. Uh, I was nervous in the bullpen, but you know once I got on the mound, I was I was pretty good. Uh, but I know that during the you know the 2002 World Series as a coach. Uh, you know, coaching, you know, coaching my guys along with, with Mike Sosha, who was, you know, extremely poised under fire, uh, you know, helping our pitching staff get through Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent and, a, you know, a great San Francisco lineup. And it, a lot of times it's, it's out of your control. I think, you know, Mike always had a line that, uh, especially when we got late in the game, especially in the ninth inning, he'd look over at me and he'd say, you know, buddy, uh, we can't play for them. And I always thought that uh, there was no truer sense in that. We can't play for them. You know, we can help them, but we can't play for them. Yeah, I always felt like, you know, when you go to the mound as a pitching coach, you know, you want to leave them with something that uh, can help the situation, whether it's, it's something you see, you know, whether it's uh, encouragement, whether it's uh, – having a way to relax the pitcher. Um, you know, it's always um, something to, that's positive before you leave it. I mean, there's been times when the manager would yell at me and say, Mark, go out and talk to the guy. And I, you know, I was doing something else, thinking of something else at the time. Now I got to go out there. So I'd walk real slow to try to figure out what I was going to say to him in order to be positive. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny when you you know when you know what you're going to say. Sometimes you jog out there, but when you see a pitching coach kind of walk out there a little slower than normal, sometimes he's kind of gathering his thoughts just for our our listeners. You know, and, and another thing is is that for me, I would you know I think good coaches are optimistic pessimists. You know, we always hope for the best, but we have to plan for the worst. So when I'm giving recommendations to a manager, you know, I have to. I have to think it through if, if things don't work out, you know, um, where we'll go from there. I don't have to necessarily mention it to him at that time, but, um, you know, there's a lot that goes to it. And and you said a mouthful because you can't do it for the players. You just hope that you prepared them as best as you can and that it'll take over. Yeah, for sure. I think that uh, you're right. I think a lot of times, depending on the player and every, every player is different, uh, you know, both position players and pitchers, but, you know, mound visits, mound visits, uh, you have those guys who are truly clear thinkers who, you know, who are poised in the moment and hear every word you say. And there's other guys that once you get to know them, uh, you know, you can't give them a lot. You just give them, you know, some nugget, but I know that, uh, but you're right. You gotta, you gotta try to hit some chord, uh, in a mound visit that, that helps them. Uh, I got, I got two stories, uh, about mound visits that I'd, I'd like to share with you guys that I think you'd all uh, yeah. appreciate. Um, I was young player. The first one, Cloyd Boyer, uh, one of the Boyer brothers, uh, the oldest one with, uh, uh, 
Ken and Cleet. He was my pitching coach in Kansas City. It was my rookie year. And I was, uh, you know, just a couple months into the big leagues, and I was faced with a bases loaded, one out jam, like in the third inning. And Cloyd came out to the mound, and, uh, you know, he was a veteran baseball man, and he, he came out, and he was from Missouri, had a little bit of a southern drawl, uh, you know, to his, uh, to his speech. And he, he looked me in the eye, and he said, Hey, Blackie, there are times when a young pitcher has, has to prove – <laughs> hey, it's usually my dog. <laughs> That's what happens when you go out the mound and pitchers don't want you there, right? <laughs> they bark right back at you. <laughs> I love it. Jim Cott tells those stories too, where he sounds like up. a dang Rottweiler or something, doesn't it? That's all right. It's, it's a it's a pet friendly show here. I've got cats and dogs walking around my house as well. Well, you had a, you had a question that you wanted to pop in. I know you had a comment. I, no, I, I I just early on when Bud was talking about his Cleveland days, I and mean, I was a minor league coach, and just thinking about putting together a roster, the people in Cleveland, we had so many good people that understood as they were building what they built in the '90s to bring in guys like Bud, and how much of a mentor he was to the kids that I had coached in the minor leagues, like Charlie Nagy and Rudy Cienes that worked their way to the big leagues. And that culture is the right culture to have, and it's the culture that's not understood when all you do is look at numbers. You you got to look at them. Is that human? Uh, we we've talked we've we've talked about it off air, but yeah, uh, is that lost now with that mentor type of player? Um, well, it, it's it, it's just having the right guys in the clubhouse, and Bud Bud was one of those guys. And you know, I know Charlie Nagy and him have a great relationship. And I had had Charlie for a couple years in the minor leagues before he got to the big leagues, and what an impact he had. And um, you know, when you're putting together a roster, uh, makeup does matter, and culture does matter. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Oh. it's very important who you bring in. Yeah. Um, you can bring in somebody that tears it down what you're trying to build. Yeah. And there's people like Buddy who who brought it to another level. Yeah. I know him and Charlie Nagy are still best friends and yeah. live near each other in California. Yeah. Charlie on. But I guess your dog was conjuring up maybe the picture yeah. you were visiting on the mound that day. Back, yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, okay. <laughs> What's the dog's name? Uh, got to give him some. Uh, I have to give him some. That's a, Weber. He's a he's a German short-haired pointer. He's my oh. daughter's dog. Uh, yeah. They're staying with us for a time being. He saw uh, somebody in the backyard and he uh, reacted. So. Oh, we have we had one of those. <laughs> they they are uh, they're talkers. Yeah, they're, they're talk. Great dogs. Very. Very, oh, yeah. very smart. And he was uh, carry on with your story. The mound, the mound uh, visit you were talking yeah, anyway, about. Yeah. Uh, I'll get to Charlie Nagy. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's a good one. So anyway, yeah. So Cloyd Boyer comes out and says, you know, Blackie, there's, there's a time uh, when a young pitcher has to prove uh, that he's a major league pitcher and can make a pitch. And now is one of those times. <laughs> and he, and he turned around and walked away and here I am with the bases <laughs> loaded and, uh, I'm, I'm going, gee, well, you know, is that it, Cloyd? You know, so sure enough, I ended up, you know, I threw a fastball uh, down the way and uh, a right-handed hitter hit an absolute missile to short 
and we turned to double play. But I always remembered, I always remembered that, that there are critical times in a ball game where, uh, you know, a pitcher, you know, has to get out of a jam. Usually in, in any, in any good game that a pitcher throws, he's challenged at least one time. Uh, could be the first inning. It could be the sixth. It could be any inning. Uh, a team is going to stress you and, and the good ones end up making a pitch. And I've always, and you watch every game and you see the, and you see good pitchers wiggle out of a jam, whether they don't give up any runs or they minimize uh, the damage. Yeah. So, uh, and I've carried that with me and I watch pitchers and there are pitchers who have that knack and they have that will to get out of jams. And they're just and what and that's what makes them. And there's other guys who who consistently make the bad pitch. It's yeah. it, it's crazy. So uh, so anyhow, uh, Cloyd Boyer uh, when he said that to me, I mean that's it, it goes a little bit with you know what I heard you guys talking about makeup and uh, character. It, it seems as though the good ones, uh, the good guys uh, who in, who embody those qualities of. Uh, of of leadership and and integrity, uh, there's the guys. They're the guys who make the good pitches. You know, good heads on their shoulders. Those types of guys. You know, that was a story that Buddy told me in 1988 when he came and joined us. Because I always ask the pitchers, new pitchers that I got, what's the best thing they ever learned from another pitching coach? And that's what he told me that story. And that was 88, and we started calling them CBs. And right. You know, for Claude Boyer and, and guys with John Farrell or Tom Candiotti or Greg Swindell, somebody at that time would get in a jam and we'd all look at each other and everybody go, it's a C, it's CB time. Right. And so when a guy got out of it, you know, it, it became and it was also good because it was a teaching tool to players to recognize when it was time to do that. Yep. When it was time to make a pitch, you know, and uh so, you know, pitching coaches can teach a lot, but we learn just as much from players like I did from Buddy at that one. Yeah. And just another What's your quick, other story. Yeah, another quick one was uh, this was Gary Blaylock a couple of years later. Uh, I, I think it was in our uh, in our World Series year. I was. You know, it was late in the year and uh, we were in a, we were in a, a close game and I. And I heard this from a couple guys in the dugout. I didn't know until I got back into the dugout. But uh, Gary came out. You know, there's a little bit of stress. And Gary came out to the mound, and everybody came to the mound. George came to the mound, and UL Washington, and Frank White, and Steve Balboni. And I'm on the mound, and, and Gary came out, and he didn't say one word. You know, I was waiting for him to say something. I was waiting for him to say something and he was there for 10 15 seconds and turned right back around and walked off and i looked at george and you know sort of shrugged his shoulders i looked at frank he sort of shrugged his shoulders and then uh you know the game resumed and you know i made some pitches and i i got out of the jam and uh i so i got back into the dugout and i was talking with saberhagen and gubaza and i said hey guys you wouldn't believe this is what happened he goes, yeah. They said, you know, sort of weird in the dugout too, because you know, Dick and Gary, uh, Dick Hauser and, and 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 Gary were sort of like talking. And Dick said, "Hey, Gary, go talk to him." And Gary said, "No, he's fine. Dick, he's fine. Uh, 
uh, Gary, go talk to him. And Dick, uh, Gary shot back to Dick. Dick, I'm telling you, buddy's fine. He's doing fine. Let him, he's, he's good. Gary, go talk to him. He goes, he goes, Dick, I got nothing to say. He goes, just go talk to him. So, uh, so when Gary got back to the dugout, Dick asked Gary, Hey, how's, how's he doing? He goes, he's doing fine. He goes, well, what'd he say? He goes, well, nothing. I go, what'd you say? And he goes, nothing. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so Goo's on Saberhagen were listening to this because, you know, they were got, you know, they got a little animate, animated in the dugout about, you know, the mound visit to your point, Mark, uh, earlier. But uh, that was the craziest. So when I got back in the dugout, I went to Gary on the side. He came over and sat down to me on the bench and, you know, we're hitting. And he goes, I go, what was that all about? He goes, I go, you didn't say anything. He goes, I know. I, I told Dick you were fine. I didn't want to go out there. You were, you were fine. And I go, Gary, that's awesome. That was perfect. Because, because yeah. George and I and everybody were like, this is the one of the best mound visits ever. The pitching coach came out and said absolutely nothing. So I was, I'll never forget that. That's funny, man. That's awesome. That's funny. Well, you know, you, you worked for a lot of managers. Um, I mean, you worked for managers. You, you, you played for managers, good ones. Uh, what are some of the things you took from those guys that help you manage them? Yeah, you're you're right, Mark. I think you 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 you, you take it you take them from everybody, and I can, you know, from the from the start as a as a player, uh, you know, Dick Hauser, uh, patience, uh, but yet intense. Uh, you know, believed in the guys he believed in. I think he uh, if if you. Uh, were a guy that Dick believed in. He stayed with you through thick and thin, and eventually, you know, you proved him right. Because uh, there was a couple of times early in my career where I was scuffling, and he, I very easily could have been sent to the minors or or sent to the bullpen, and he kept me in the rotation. Uh, so his belief in me, you know, just instilled a great deal of confidence in me. Uh, you know, when I got to Cleveland, you know, obviously your influence, but uh, you know, Doc Edwards and, and, and John McNamara, you know, just the, you know, the importance of pitching, you know, and Johnny Mac, you know, loved, knew the importance of pitching and taking care of starting pitching uh, and how, how, how fragile that is, how that can be. Uh, you know, when I got to, when I got to San Francisco uh, with, with Roger Craig uh, for two years and then Dusty Baker, uh, uh, both extremely positive uh, men, right? Roger, sort of, uh, you know, his the way he the way he taught, uh, you know, he brought the whole organization uh, together. You know, from you know his respect for, uh, you know, the ushers, the ticket takers, the, the the parking lot people, the clubbies, right? I mean, he just he was such a uh, sort of a sort of an organization builder, and at that time, the when he got to San Francisco, the Giants needed that, and they, you know, turned around and you know ended up winning the division, went to the playoffs a few times under Roger. But you know how he treated everybody in the organization, uh, Dusty. Uh, you know when you and I played my last two years uh, in San Francisco were Dusty's first two as a manager, '93 and '94, and. Uh, with Dusty, you really felt as though he was in the battle with you, right? He was, uh, he was a little bit younger and you just felt as though your manager, uh, was right next to you. 
like uh, like your teammate. He was a teammate in a lot of ways. Just you know, great energy. Uh, you know, he was like with you. I mean, you really truly felt that. Uh, and I've always, you know, you know, being you got to be who you are. But I always wanted that type of uh, response from my players that they felt that I was with them. You know, side by side in the battle. Uh, you know, when I, when I got into coaching, you know, when I went to Anaheim, you know, Mike Sosha, that whole group, Mike Sosha, Ron Renicky, uh, Joe Madden, uh, Mickey Hatcher, uh, you know, I learned a ton from those guys and, you know, set, sort of set me up to manage, you know, along with every other manager that I had, uh, you know, Mike, his, his sturdiness, his consistency, uh, you know, not afraid to, uh, you know, not afraid to, uh, to put the squeeze play on, not afraid to hit and run with, uh, you know, unconventional time just and taking on the responsibility if it didn't work. Right. Just being sturdy and and convicted in his ideas. You know, Mike uh, <clears throat> was very convicted in what he believed in and taught it. And I think eventually, you know, players uh, believed in Mike and what what he stood for. Uh and that, and that staff, the seven years I was in Anaheim, uh, you know, what great growth. But you take it from everybody, uh, Mark, as you know. I, mean, I could, you know, the endless coaches that I had, the, uh, the managers, uh, you know, I think they're all in me in some capacity. But, uh, you know, there's a, there, you know, those guys I mentioned, you know, those things really, you know, really hit home for me and who they were as, as leaders. And, uh, you know, I try to when when things are tough, I, I sort of lean back to to those guys in 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 recollection of how they handled things, because, you know, it really hasn't changed. You know, players, you know, players are, you know, in this day and age, you know, people say the players are different. They are in some ways, but in other ways, they're not. They're still human beings that, you know, are playing baseball. And I think that. Uh, you know, how you handle those guys is, is uh, how we were handled years ago, the good ones anyway. And I can't, uh, you know, Mario, you, you mentioned Johnny Farrell earlier and, and Greg Swindell and uh, Tom Candiotti. And, and speaking of managers, if you recall, Mark, in, you know, 1988, uh, on that team in Cleveland, uh, we had, uh, you know, we had myself, we had Ron Washington, we had Charlie Manuel, uh, we had Terry Francona, and we had John Farrell. All became major league managers. So, you know, it's something to the coaching staff we had there that, uh, you know, helped shape, you know, the five of us. Uh, off yeah, and Charlie, was, and Charlie was the hitting coach. Yeah, Charlie was the hitting coach. So, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, I, and I learned from, you know, Tito and I were teammates for a couple of years, and it wasn't surprising to – to he's to see uh, his success as he went on to manage the Phillies and you know and the and the Red Sox and the and the Indians because uh, it goes back to you know he was you know he was a he's a baseball rat he loved the, he loved the baseball field he loved being at the yard uh, and that passion I spoke to earlier about hard work and passion uh, you know that you know sort of what makes Tito who he is you know it's yeah. funny it's funny how how your teammates that, uh, you know, they end up, they have a lot of the similar uh, interests that you do a lot of times, especially when we used to have roommates, you know, I had, 
I had Tom Kelly as a roommate. I had Mike Pazik as a roommate. I had Steve Luber as a roommate. I had Willie Upshaw as a roommate. I had a lot of different roommates. And, uh, you know, they all stayed in the game. They all did stuff in the game. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. When you're around people with like goals and interests, um, you know, your, your conversations are different. You know, I know that you're one of the best communicators I know in the game. And it's interesting for you to tell the Roger Craig thing that he knew everybody, you know, from the groundskeeper to the, the assistant clubby guy. Well, that's the way you are. I've never seen anybody that can remember names like you can. It's unbelievable. And it brings people, like you say, organizationally, it brings people closer together, even in baseball. I mean, the, the, I'm not going to say anybody's insignificant, but somebody that you don't spend a lot of time with and you go in to play Philly and the guy's like the assistant to the assistant clubhouse guy and you go, hey, Johnny, what's going on? How you doing? It just used to amaze me. You remembered everybody's name. How did you do that? I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I always – uh, uh, you know, I always remembered, you know, my little league teammates, uh, you know, as I got older, I just classmates, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a gift and, uh, not to say that I know everybody that I've met, but, uh, you know, it was just important to me to, you know, to remember. Right. And I just, it was something that I, um, you know, it's something that I've had for just a long time. And I, you know, when Will was uh, talking earlier about, uh, you know, what it takes to, you know, be a good teammate, I, you know, it, it takes, it takes everyone, you know, in the organization, I think, to, to bring out that, you know, that to bring out that spirit, uh, to bring it, you know, the environment, the culture, the vibe of an organization. And I think it's everybody. So I think the, the uh, connectivity of people in the organization uh, is important. And I know there's, you know, there's separate entities, uh, you know, when you go to work, uh, you know, during the season, right, you got your ticketing, you got marketing, you got baseball operations, you got ballpark ops, you got engineers. Uh, but the, the better an organization uh, does as far as connecting everybody, and, you know, that's something that, I, that I, I, I speak strongly to our players about, right? Just, you know, don't, uh, don't be in, try not to be an introvert. Come out of your shell, meet people, bring everybody together. Because, you know, the game's about the players. But, you know, people in the organization, you know, care about the players. And if the, care, if the players care back, uh, I think it just it makes for a, a better environment to go to work in. And I think ultimately at some, at some level, it, it, it helps, it helps teams win. And I know that, uh, you know, we've had a couple rough years here in, in Colorado, but it's, uh, you know, it's part of my job to make sure that that, that spirit, uh, is in a good spot, that, that, that environment, the work environment is, is great where players want to come to work. They can't wait to get to the ballpark and try to win a, and try to win a ball game. So, uh, and I think by, by being genuine and, and caring about people and having, you know, empathy for, for everyone. I think that's important. Well, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but it was 1990 when you got traded to Toronto. You're the only guy I ever had, I had in the bullpen, you were warming up before a game. I don't remember who we were playing, but 
Um, the phone rings in the bullpen and it's Doc Edwards, who's the manager. And he says, uh, he marks sit buddy down. He just got traded. And we didn't have a starting pitcher. And it was really funny because um, that had never happened to me before. And Steve Olin, who used to like to come down and sit in the bullpen and watch the starters warm up, he was at that time, he was kind of our uh, middle reliever setup kind of guy. He only pitched a couple innings. He'd never started a game in his life. And Doc said, uh, who do you want to start? And I said, well, Steve Olin's down here. He's the most rested. I said, why don't we have Steve start it? And then we just piece the game together. He says, okay, tell him he's starting. So I I turned to, to Steve Olin and I go, Steve, uh, you're starting. He goes, yeah, right. And he started laughing. I said, no, I'm serious. You're starting the game. So he said, he goes, he goes, how cool is that? You remember, <laughs> Steve, you remember yeah. Steve, how he was? Yeah. He was just a most innocent, nicest guy ever, always excited about stuff. And he just said, oh, that is the coolest thing ever. All right, let me warm up. So he warms up. He goes out and throws like five shutout innings of one hit, I think it was. It was unbelievable. He had never started a game in his life anywhere. The first opener. Yep, first first opener. opener He was was the first opener everywhere. And Buddy was on his way to – freaking Toronto to try to help them win the thing. That was, uh, uh, yeah, that was bizarre. Uh, right. Cause I'm writing them, you know, it was seven 30 game and it was like seven 20. I'm right in the middle of my warm up, And, uh, you said, Hey, stop. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? Stop. He goes, you're not starting. You've been traded. So, uh, you know, that was, that was a, you know, that was a very weird walk uh, from the, you know, from our bullpen down the down the right field line into the into the dugout and then eventually into the clubhouse and, you know, packing up, uh, you know, packing up your stuff. And, you know, you know, the next morning I'm, I'm on a plane to Toronto. I mean, but that, you know, that's that I mean, that's baseball. Right. I mean, there's there's stories like that, uh, you know, maybe not that drastic of getting. Uh, pulled while you're warming up, but you know we've we've known players who've been traded in the middle of the game and have to come out. Uh, Mark, obviously, you guys know that uh, you know the minor league game where the general manager calls the farm director and and pulls a minor league player uh, off the field because either he's coming up to the big leagues or he's been traded, uh, and then the and the next day, uh, you know they're gone. You know they're somewhere else, and that's the you know, the thing about, you know, our sport that, you know, makes it unique that, uh, you know, these type of transactions happen uh, in real time and happen fast. Who on yeah. here hasn't Mark traded, huh, Dave? <laughs> well, he tried to trade me this morning when he didn't get his email for the invite for the show. I, I found myself on the waiver wire today. I had to pull it off. Hey, hey, hey buddy, I'll, I'll tell you my story. 1981, Mark, the man at first year managing in Charlotte and I'm in the starting rotation. He takes me out on a Tuesday on a Thursday. Oh, this is a good story. On a Thursday night, we go 19 innings and I'm an, uh, a position player through the last two innings. And <laughs> he had told me I was going to pitch out of the bullpen. I'm going, Holy shit. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm behind Johnny Denman, our right field, 
worker here in, <laughs> in this pitching staff. So the next day I got to the ballpark early and I did my running and I, I, I was in, in the locker room and I heard Mark go, where's Will George at? And I go, Oh shit, <clears throat> I'm getting released. So I, I went and hid in the bathroom and uh, he, he drug me out of the bathroom and he goes, Hey, I, I, I'm so, I, you're not getting released. You got traded to the Tigers. He said, and I, I couldn't tell you last night cause the deal wasn't done yet, but um <laughs> You know, I felt so bad that I used the position player ahead. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Tom Giordano said under no circumstances do you pitch Will George. <laughs> and it ends up being a freaking extra inning game and I gotta pitch a position player. Oh my gosh. We didn't have we didn't have a very big pitching staff. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, we had ten guys. I was number eleven on that staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh. Yeah, that's a hey, buddy. You were involved. You pitched in the George Brett Pine Tar game. I was I was wondering what that was like, and I will tell you a story later about that that I asked George about it. Yeah, the well, yeah, I started that game, and I you know I pitched into the sixth inning. So when I when I got taken out, uh, we were behind. So I was you know on the hook to be the losing pitcher. Uh, so, uh, you know, retreated into the, you know, into the clubhouse and into the training room to get, you know, ice uh, on my elbow and do my post game uh, stuff in the training room. So the ninth inning rolls around and, you know, George goes deep. And, uh, you know, at that time I was in there with uh, Mike Armstrong, another relief pitcher who was in the game and then out of the game. So we were watching on a you know, a small black and white TV in, in uh, the Yankee Stadium training room. So, you know, we, you know, jumped high fives, uh, you know, the whole thing, you know, Homer off of Goose, you know, what a moment, uh, you know, at the stadium. And then we saw, you know, the whole, uh, uh, you know, Billy Martin, uh, Greg Nettles, the, the bat, you know, the, you know, we've all seen the, we've all seen the footage of that unfold. Uh, and then ultimately George coming out and we we're just, you know, we we're just glued to the TV in the, in the training room. Like what is going on? Just, uh, you know, it was, it was bizarre. And, uh, and, you know, I could talk at, at length about some of the, the stories where the, you know, how the bat ended up, you know, in our clubhouse and guys were trying to hide the bat and Gaylord Perry and Leon Roberts, you know, got the bat from the bat boy and, uh, the umpires were, you know, came up, uh, you know, into the clubhouse, which never happens, right, Mario? You never see an umpire in the in a clubhouse, home or visitors, you know, asking people where's the bat, and ultimately we, you know, we gave the bat back. But, you know, the the the, the crazy part of the the whole story is, you know, when, uh, you know, when Lee McPhail reversed the call and upheld our protest and allowed the homer, you know, was the makeup game. You know, when we had to go back to to Yankee Stadium about three weeks later and resume the game, you know, in the from the point uh, where George hit the home run, we both had an off day. We were uh, the Royals were traveling to Baltimore and the Yankees had an off day in New York. So, you know, we flew uh, from Kansas City to to New York, uh, landed uh, in uh, in Newark, took a bus over to Yankee Stadium, but only you know, only about 
15 of us went over. George stayed, you know, on the plane and eventually got off and went and got a bite to eat uh, near the airport in Newark with a few other guys who weren't on the roster. My day to throw on the side, so I I went to the stadium and, uh, you know, we got to the stadium and there was, you know, just a couple hundred people in the stands. It was eerie because usually go to Yankee Stadium and there's a there's a buzz to it, uh, but there was no one there. Uh, you know, basically to shorten the story, we you know the Yankees and the Royals went out and they we we played catch a couple and the Yankees took the field uh, in the top of the ninth. Uh, Ron Guidry was playing center field. Uh, Don Mattingly was playing second base because you had to use the the roster that you that you had. Uh, they got uh, they got the last out in the ninth inning. Uh, Quisenberry came in and, and got three outs in the in the bottom of the ninth. We were we were on the field for maybe you know seven eight minutes. Uh, got back on the you know went back into the clubhouse, showered, and uh, went back to the went back to the plane. But we were maybe at the stadium for about an hour. It was it was it was, it was surreal. And what, on a side uh, side note to that, you know, as soon as uh, Lee McPhail. Uh, upheld our protest and we took the lead. Uh, Quisenberry knew that he was going to have to pitch the bottom of the ninth. And and he was nervous for two weeks and he was extremely nervous on the flight there knowing that he was going to pitch. Because if you think or think about a reliever, they never know when they're going to pitch, right? The game starts. You don't know the uh, <laughs> whether you're going to pitch or not. You don't know if you're going to get a save that night because you, you don't know what's going to happen during that game. So he was a nervous wreck knowing that he was going to pitch. It was, we were giving him so much, you know, so much crap that it was, it was great to watch a quiz uh, sort of squirm. But, uh, but that was really a, a surreal day going back to the stadium to, to basically get four outs. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, I coach for Kansas city. Um, and the year I coached when I was there coaching, um, I became friends with George because, you know, Bobby, his brother, and I went to college together. So I knew his brother for years. And uh, we became friends. And one day I was talking to George and I said, <laughs> I was only kidding, but I go, George, what about that pine tar game, man? And he goes, oh, that was unbelievable. He says, I was so mad. And I go, what, what were you mad for? It was the rules. <laughs> Oh man, I that was the only time I saw George have evil in his eyes toward me. Right. And he was like he was like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> you know. Uh and then the only other time I had that happen was years ago, you know, we we used to play the Yankees when I was with the Indians. Um in the years when we we had shots at going to the World Series, it seemed like they'd come in our way and in 97 I think it was 97 um, uh, we played the Yankees in the, the before they started their big run of World Series championships and stuff um, we played them in the final game of the LA LS LCS uh, series um, and uh, the league series and and it was the ninth inning and we had a one run lead and and Jose Mesa was pitching and and uh, Paul O'Neill was coming up to bat with like two outs. And uh, he hit a freaking bullet off the center field wall, right off the top of the wall and bounced back in for a double. And uh, 
And then, then uh, what's his name? Center fielder. Um, Bernie. 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 Bernie's the next hitter, and Bernie flies out to left field to end the, and we won the pennant, uh, or we won that that round against the Yankees. And uh, and so years later, I'm over, and I'm I'm at Bucky Dent's baseball school in Delray, and. Uh, just checking out the facility and talking to Bucky and stuff. And he has Paul O'Neill there as a guest for the, uh, uh, for the camp. And we were talking, we were talking about all the games we had against them and stuff. And I go, how about that game when you hit that ball off the top of the wall and it stayed in <laughs> for you know, like we've been joking around, kidding around, I think instantly his face changed. He was so mad it was unbelievable. I couldn't even talk to him anymore. It was like he relived that moment because that was the year they didn't go to the World Series. Right. You know, and it was funny because I said, God, I've seen that. I've seen that before with George and you. So I, I think I'm not going to mention the big moments that that weren't really ones you want to relive. I don't think I'll bring those up anymore. Right. Total, now, total warriors right there. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, they were focused warriors, man. It was game on. And uh, those guys don't forget anything. No. They can relive a moment in a heartbeat. No doubt. The yep. Okay, I want to ask you a question now. I saw this. This in, I've run into these things when I do the research for your bio. And I saw you were drafted twice out of junior college. Once in the third round in January, once in the second round in June. And you didn't sign, and you went to San Diego State. Why didn't you sign? Well, uh, you know, back then, you know, there was, as you know, there were two drafts, and they were, uh, you know, one in January, uh, and that was basically for for junior college players and and players who got drafted in the summer who didn't sign. Uh, it was another shot for teams to, you know, to you know, to get more players. Uh, honestly, Mark, the, the bonuses were, uh, it was a, it was a small bonus that I was offered. And, and truthfully, I thought that, you know, at, at that point, a college education for me was important. And I, and I, and I had the confidence that if I was good enough then to get drafted, I'd be good enough in a year or two after I went to college. And, uh, you know, physically, you know, I was a little bit undersized at that time. Uh, I hadn't really, you know, peaked as far as my just physical maturity. So, uh, you know, I was getting advice both ways, right, uh, from, a, from a lot of people uh, about, hey, you should sign. No, you should go to school. Uh, you know, I, I was getting it from a lot of different angles. But ultimately, uh, I felt as though probably physically and mentally, uh, it wasn't the right thing to do. It was probably best for me to get out of Washington state or get out of the rain, go to Southern California, you know, play in a, you know, in a, a hotbed of baseball to, to, to improve and really gauge to see where I was, uh, as far as performance. And it, and it worked out. Uh, you know, I stayed healthy. I got bigger, I got stronger. Granted, I still got drafted in the 17th round. I was the 417th player pick, but I was in a much better place physically and mentally to start a career. And, 
you know, I'm, and I moved pretty quickly in the Seattle system based on, you know, my age and, uh, and really where I was mentally, uh, and physically. So, uh, in my case, it worked out. How about, how about some of the players that went to San Diego state and got to yeah, the big leagues? Pretty you know, impressive. Very impressive. I think there was, you know, we can probably pull it up on the, uh, you know, on the internet at, at one point, this was about four or five years ago. Uh, somebody uh, did some research on, you know, what colleges produced the highest war numbers, uh, you know, in, from major league players. And you, you think right away, Arizona State, USC, uh, Florida State. And as it turned out, San Diego State, uh, as far as producing war, uh, was like in the top five. And I looked at it and I go, wow. And then I started thinking uh, Tony Gwynn, uh, Steven Strasburg, yeah. Mark, Mark Grace, Greg Nettles, Dave Smith, uh, wow. Bobby Meacham, uh, Travis Lee. I mean, I, down the line. I mean, there were some really good players. And uh, and and sure enough, that uh it was the case. So we turned, I mean, we turned out some players far, you know, as far back as, you know, Craig Nettles was really the first guy to come out of there and, and really be a, a, a true big leaguer. But, you know, coach Dietz, Jim Dietz did a great job, you know, his tenure. And then, and then Tony Gwynn, when he took over for coach Dietz uh, did a great job as well. So again, it's, it's turned out some players guys it really has. Yeah. yeah, I was, I, I, you know, my, both my brothers and my mom all graduated from San Diego state and I only lived to like five minutes from there. And, uh, that's probably where I would have gone to school if I didn't end up going to Cal Poly, uh, up in Pomona. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of friends that I played with in summer ball that played for San Diego state. And there was always great players there, man. It was, uh, it was, it was a great, actually San Diego during that period of time, probably from the sixties through the Strasburg, I guess, um, you know, it was really a hub for not only college, but high school players, San Diego. Yeah. I mean, San Diego obviously has, has turned out, you know, some great athletes, right. From in all sports, you know, you know Bill Walton, Marcus Allen. I mean, you know, I mean, just, you know, in, in those two sports, we can go on and on. Uh, but, the, the thing that was appealing to me was, you know, obviously the weather to be able to play a lot. And, and we played, I mean, in the fall and winter, we would play a, you know, a 40 to 50 game sort of, even though there were scrimmages, you know, we were playing, you know, junior colleges, we were playing USD, USIU. And then during the season, uh, you know, just our regular season, we, we played, you know, 60, 60 plus games. And now they've, they meaning the NCA has scaled back, you know, all the dates of restrictions and uh, of when you can, you know, when you can practice, when you can get on the field to, you know, to level the playing field that, uh, you know, the, the warm weather States and the warm weather schools, you know, can't get on the field uh, for that competitive advantage against the, you know, Northern schools or, or, uh, you know, teams from part of the country that, uh, you know, can't get on the field. So, and that makes sense too. But, you know, back in the day, it was the wild, wild west where, I mean, you, you could play all the time and play anybody. 
it was, you got on the field for sure. And coach Dietz, uh, you know, was a proponent of, of playing and practicing. Yeah. We, we used to play on Sundays before spring training. Um, you know, we'd have Terry Forrester and Greg Nettles and Bob Boone and, we put a team together and we'd play the junior colleges like on Sunday for a game, getting ready for spring training. And uh, it was every Sunday. Like you said, it's raining there today. And we used to hate it. Like Sunday would come around, we were ready to play a game and it would rain it out. Yeah. And it never rains in San Diego. Right. You know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, we used to play year round all the time. And uh, you know, it's funny. I've talked to Brent Strom about it. Um, uh, John D'Aquisto, guys that I came up with, um, that we, you know, what it was like back in those days in baseball. Yeah. And then the famous San Diego School of Baseball, Bob Cluck. Yeah, Clucky. All those guys. Yeah, Bob Cluck, Glennie Zell, Bob Skinner. Uh, you know, what a, what a group. Uh, and Trammell. Trammell yeah. joined in. And then, uh, yeah, and, and those guys, yeah, the founders, Skinner, Cluck, Ezell. Uh, you know, they passed the, they passed the torch down to Trammell and Tim Flannery, Dave Smith, you know, some, some great baseball guys too. So, but that, I mean, the San Diego school of baseball was, was nationwide family. We'd get players from, uh, you know, all over the, you know, all over the country, young kids would, would, would come in for a, a, you know, a, a week and, you know, that week between, Christmas and New Year's was was huge for the San Diego School of Baseball. Everybody, speaking of young players, uh, we've got a huge audience of young players and parents that that chime in on our show. And these two guys here do a great job of getting messaging out, as as all our pitching guys do on the network. What message would you have to to young kids that are in a probably the most confusing time for young pitchers that we've ever had, with more Tommy John surgeries, uh, you know, all sorts of internet training methods, parents don't know what's up and what's down. What would be a good message for kids and parents, young pitchers developing now, you know, leading them up to whether it's high school or college, or if they're fortunate enough to play professional baseball? Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, for me, Dave, it's a, you know, it's a broad, it's a broad question. I'll try to answer it as concise as possible because, you know, there's very varying ages that, you know, there are, there are things that are important, but uh, you know, the first thing for me is, you know, try to develop a, a sound uh, throwing motion, right? I don't want to get into delivery, but, you know, the, the, you know, a proper throwing motion where your, your hand, your thumbs underneath, your fingers are on top of the ball, your elbows above your shoulder when you throw, uh, you know, playing catch properly, and then, you know, strengthening the arm uh, via long toss and, and, and just playing catch, but developing a, you know, a sound throwing action uh, is important. Uh, no need to worry about a curve ball at age 10 or 11 or 12. Uh, you know, I've never seen a big leaguer at age 11, right? I mean, that their time is coming. And I understand, you know, I, I, I understand the competitive nature of what's happening uh, in today's society with travel ball starting at uh, very young ages, but uh, you know, arm care and, and health is, is so critical for, you know, a young pitcher and his future, which is ultimately, 
you know, you want to you want to have fun and have success in high school. And if you're a, a talented player, you know, into college and if you're talented into the minor leagues and eventually into the big leagues. But if you're if you're hurt, if your arm is sore, if you're injured, you know, that will never happen. So, uh, you know, there is a, an arm care component that, you know, I that I talk to, you know, my friends who you know, have young kids or my friends now at my age who have grandkids, neighbors, uh, you know, just how to properly throw the ball. And uh, again, I, I do think there's a rest component in here where, uh, you know, your body needs a break from throwing. And I, I, I don't think that, you know, there should be 12 months of games for, for youth baseball. I mean, I'm a very strong proponent of that. Uh, you know, that the, you know, that a young, that a young pitcher has to, uh, you know, through natural maturity and how the body changes, uh, you know, you, you got to let nature take its course, but. Uh, how about this push for max velocity now? I yeah, know it's, that, it's, I mean, that, that bothers me too, especially the, you know, the younger pitchers, uh, I, you know, there is. You know, there are and it's proven now that there are drills and techniques that will help your velocity, but it can be overdone. Uh, And I don't like the mindset of that either, that there's more to pitching than velocity. Uh, You know, those I'm sure Mark and Will have talked, uh, you know, over the length of these podcasts about, you know, the field of pitch, the the uh, the art of pitching. Uh, is being lost, uh, you know, in a lot of young pitchers, uh, you know, due to the, you know, to the velocity craze. And uh, it, it bothers me. It, it truly does. But, you know, you know, buddy, we talk all the time on here, you know, and I do do organizational minor league coverage. And, you know, I'm sure you here in Colorado, well, we got a guy that throws 99. Well, he throws 99, but uh, he actually throws strikes at about 94, 95. So like all this emphasis on the velocity side and higher spin rate and not enough emphasis. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about before we got on the air about the driveline people. Yeah, they can teach you how to throw harder. But if you if you went out and uh, did a survey of young kids, they would they would tell you that the driveline people are the best pitching teachers in the country and they have nothing they know nothing about pitching pitching is so much more than just velocity yeah so it, uh, it i mean i think it you know those of us in professional baseball are are taking it back by you know a lot of what's happening at facilities now there granted there's a lot of great stuff that's going on at facilities and there's some there's some great teachers but uh you know, I think there's a, you know, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of young pitchers who are getting off track at a, at too young of an age, and it's gonna, it's going to end up, you know, damaging whatever hopes they have to to be high school pitchers, college pitchers, or professional pitchers. I mean, a lot of this has to happen naturally. And I do think you can you can overdo it. You can you can you can throw too much too hard if you're trying. If that's your only goal is to throw hard, yeah, no doubt. <clears throat> I, uh, 
I remember sitting with uh, Brian Harvey when his son Hunter was gotten a double A at 19. And he said, you know, I'm just, the clock's ticking for his Tommy John, Will. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, he's doing things since he's been 16 or 17 that the arm just not is not going to be capable of taking. Right. But that's the world we live in. And that's how he got drafted in the first round. And, and that's, that's not a, a thing. We need to educate parents that and educate our industry that that is not the most important thing. It will come with, you know, development. Right. Yeah. Guys, we've kept Buddy here for well over an hour. We appreciate all his time. What last questions would you have for him? Well, I think that I think a lot of the stuff that, you know, Buddy's talked about, you know, you know, the, the fact that people people have to be patient to learn the craft. And that's what some of the best teachers, best managers, best baseball people do. You know, they learn from others uh, like Buddy has. And, you, you know, he's told some great stories about people he's been surrounded with. You know, we often talk about, you know, you surround yourself with good people, you'll be good. I think uh, I think it's it's no more apropos than, than what Buddy's gone through in his career. And we really appreciate, you know, the insights and the stories and, and things from somebody who I consider one of the best baseball people I know. Agreed. That's a great, great place to wrap. Buddy, thank you so much for giving us well over an hour today and our 65,000 uh, subscribers got a treat. Thanks so much for, for joining us. And uh, hold, hold on with us until after the show, if you don't mind. Uh, but I uh, want to thank Jaw Bats, uh, RVG at checkout. Again, we'll get you a discount on their great maple bats. Also, uh, we'll get you some a discount on any of their apparel, any of their merchandise. Thanks to Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies for recognizing us as a nominee for Baseball Podcast of the World, or for the World, Baseball Podcast of the Year, I should say. And to Millions, our new marketing partner, thanks for helping us with the influx of attention. We, we, we value our relationship and look forward to a prosperous 2024. So with that, guys, Mark and Will, thanks again for a great show. We appreciate you guys. Awesome. Thanks, thanks Dave. Guys. Thanks again, thanks, buddy. buddy. Thanks, guys. It was, a, it was a treat. Yep. And hang on with us for a bit. It's a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, episode 435 in the books.